So, so, so when I, I'm thinking hustle, it's like... So if I had to word association, activist hustle. I think activism is just taking a stand. People um, of color, minorities, existing as themselves fully and embracing the hell you out don't, of that. You hustle to get something that like is not I'm on the road. And not only that, everyone's struggling. Hustle to me is getting shit done. Always a light at the end of the tunnel. I would just say action every day. You're about to listen to an interview that highlights the dopest of millennial activist projects from across the country to feed the inner activist in all of us. Welcome to the Activist Hustle. The Activist Hustle is brought to you by Blueprint Leadership. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Rina. How are you? Good. How are you today? I'm doing great. You know, it's a beautiful day. I'm amazed at how fast we're moving through these episodes. I, you know, I keep thinking like, oh, every two weeks it, it's going to be, it's going to drag. Like each week is going to drag a lot. Mm-hmm. And next thing I know, we're here again. Putting out another episode. Let's do it. Mm-hmm. So who do we have today? I'm going to let you do this intro. We have an amazing guest. Her name is Chu Huang. And um, she is an very active member of her community in the Boston Chinatown neighborhood. And I'm so glad we had the chance to talk to her because I, being not from Boston originally, wanted to learn more about Chinatown. And when I met her, she gave me an impromptu tour of Chinatown. Really? Yeah, I, I learned so much. She really is an expert of her community and has found ways to get involved through the Boston Chinatown Resident Association. And is making a real difference, I feel, through being a part of these groups. Oh, I, I love that because Boston, like many other cities, is very divided in terms of like neighborhoods, right? Like each neighborhood has like its own culture and its own pocket and mm-hmm. its own leadership and coalition and like neighborhood groups. Um, so I'm really interested to hear about this. Yeah. And Anything you want to yeah. highlight? Well, we she also, she works at Northeastern Crossing, which I think is worth mentioning because it's a really interesting community space. Another unique thing about Boston is how many like universities and colleges are embedded oh. throughout the city. Yeah. And Northeastern kind of is infringing on some community space, um, if you're familiar with Boston and the Roxbury community. And they have created this space in Northeastern Crossing to find a way to be more collaborative and open up that space to the community that's living there. So it's another... I call that conscious activism. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right, let's jump into it. Yeah. So hello, welcome. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for joining us today. So why don't you tell us, like, let's just r- jump right into an introduction. Tell mm-hmm. us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Mm-hmm. My name is Chu Huang. I am a first-generation college student, Chinese-American, um, native Bostonian, <laughs> and um, I, I am raised in a single-parent household in a bicultural um, sort of upbringing where... Uh, I am part of a working class background, and today I work as the Community Programs Manager at Northeastern Crossing under the City and Community Affairs Department at Northeastern University. It's a lot of titles. Yeah. (laughs) So where do you go to school right now? Uh, I 
Well, I'm able to pursue my master's at Northeastern right now. So mm-hmm. nice. That's where I can okay. And you're getting your master's in um, master's science and leadership with concentration in organization communication. So tell us a little bit about Chinese immigrant student leadership. So that was the program that I spearheaded when I worked at the Boston Chinatown Neighborhood Center (BCNC), and it is a very first time uh, leadership youth leadership program that targets recent immigrants. To develop their leadership skills, so it ranges from teaching them skills as, of advocacy, how to navigate different kind of educational systems, um, also getting to know what our college looking for, and being able to talk about the different kind of expectations that their parents might have on them. Maybe like pressuring them to always aim for like the reputable kind of colleges like Ivy League, but um, hopefully debunking some of that with whatever education. That they choose or path, yeah. um, it's just as valuable. And this is your project, correct? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then, so now move me towards the action plan. Yeah. Um, so short, shortly after that, I want to say that um, I got into youth work is because of my activism. <laughs> when I got more woke or like just <laughs> went into my own social consciousness, mm-hmm. um, it was during college when I was at UMass Boston. And and I had a double major in sociology and Asian American studies. And so I'm a huge advocate for ethnic studies. And I strongly believe that there's multiple infinity kind of like truths out there, a set of experiences. And even within one group, everybody's experience could be completely different from one to the other. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that being able to find that Um, affinity space where I was first entered into a classroom where I not only saw the struggles of my people but I also saw the brilliance of my people I also got to meet like role models people who had faith in me and it was through that where I began to realize I can I don't always have to be in this marginalized space where I feel disempowered I can have a voice I can solidify my own truth and being able to make a change and make a difference. And that's the reason why I went into youth work. Because I feel like it shouldn't start in college. It should start earlier on. And it's funny that I think you mentioned like being like being woke or like mm-hmm. when you became woke. Because there's this quote that says, um, no, not everybody is born woke. But everybody has a moment of awakening. Mm-hmm. And it happens like in different moments of our lives. Yeah. Um, so I think it's really interesting that for you, this like transformative experience or this awakening happened during college, mm-hmm. but it also was happening parallel to your empowerment as well. And yeah. I think for a lot of people, the awakening comes and then maybe the empowerment comes, but you're having both of them happen at the same time. So is that when you were like, I'm an activist, like I'm going to do this, this is, or when, when was it that you started considering yourself an activist? I would probably say I, my activism is a, is a work in progress all the time. I think that activism was like framed differently in high school. It was like community service, you yeah. know, do good. You can make a difference. Clean up your neighborhood, right? As I grow, continue to gain new experiences, I, that, I find new meaning to activism and I find different kind of events, different kind of ways of how activism could look like. Yes, I love that. This keeps coming up. (laughs) This keeps coming up for us. That activism is not a cookie cutter thing. Like that's gotta be now like our slogan. Like 
activism is not a cookie cutter thing, but I, one thing that you bring up is that we are not only exploring areas of activism, but we're creating our own methods of activism, which yeah. is so important and so true. Mm-hmm. And especially when you have so many issues that you have to kind of tackle and get creative with tackling, right? Right, right. So, okay, so tell me a little bit about how long you've been in the um, in the Chinatown Resident Association mm-hmm. and what that is like. Yeah. And what that is. Mm-hmm. So the Boston Chinatown Resident Association is pretty much a neighborhood group. Okay. Um, so it it is a group of people that live in the neighborhood, but all are welcome to participate. It's meant to be a community platform. So if there were any sort of changes that were to come in the neighborhood or any sort of services that people want to reach out to the residents in that neighborhood, they would. this would be... A, convening of everybody together who cares about the neighborhood that um, that has an opinion about um, and they want to like know just what's happening um, and so that's what this neighborhood association does um, some of the other concrete examples I can provide is if there's like hotel development that wants to come they need to go through the city agencies and then like the Boston Planning Development Agency, like these different kind of like boards. Mm-hmm. And one of the requirements is that they need to present at a community meeting so that people in the neighborhood knows what the plan might be. And um, I have been involved with the Boston Chinatown Resident Association for nearly two to three years now. Um, and today How? I'm the co-chair there. How did you get involved in that? I think that... It was through another neighborhood community leader. Okay. Yeah. Before, I had no idea what neighborhood groups does, and I was like, oh, I'm not interested. Uh, <laughs> there's a lot of old people here. No, thank you. <laughs> so, I mean, no, seriously, there are a lot yeah. of um, OGs in there, <laughs> the people who fought and um, and paved the way for us. Um, so, I, you know, that's uh, this is also a very interesting space because there is this noticeable age difference, mm-hmm. um, which triggers me to think about all the time, where are people like myself? Where are people of my demographics and younger or maybe in between or from like the 30s to the 60s, right? And so it it makes me think about all these different kind of questions of how to reach out to different kind of people um, and letting them know that. Your activist mind is working already. You're like, this is an issue. I need to fix it. But So what it, geographically, Uh what is the Chinatown? Yeah, so Chinatown, depending on who you're talking to. Yeah, right? like even as you're talking, I'm like, hmm, exactly. Yeah, I like, right. know the barriers, but I don't think I know the borders. Like, yeah. The, the borders of it. I mean, it goes back into history because, like, Chinatown used to be, Boston Chinatown used to be much bigger than the block that it yeah. is right now today. And it was because of, like, the I-93 highway, the ramp that goes towards, like, Quincy or towards the suburban area that shaved off a lot, like two-thirds, a third of Boston Chinatown. Yeah. So when I think about that area, and this happens to, it's happening to a lot of our neighborhoods, right? Like I think that gentrification is just like a thing already. Mm -hmm. But in particular for a neighborhood like Chinatown that is centered, it's such an ideal location. So for those of you that don't know, in Boston, Chinatown is kind of, in, in, in feel free to jump in, but like in this in between of like the theater district, I think is what we call it, yeah. downtown crossing, yeah. which is like almost like a shopping district, mm-hmm. but also a like a tourist area, 
Um, and then I want to say the financial district yeah. that has the other yeah. side of it. So you can see how so many decisions are getting made by these other like interest groups. But how long has the Chinatown Resident Association been running? Um, I think it's definitely been more than thirty years or so, but it could be a large number, like fifty or sixty. But so how how do you think that something that's been running for so long yeah. and that is mostly dominated by, like you said, like the OGs, the people that have been there and have fought for the neighborhood since the yeah. start, but they're the ones making the decisions for everybody, which includes millennials and Gen Z mm-hmm. that live in this community. Mm-hmm. How do you think that has affected the neighborhood? Well, I think it's a really complicated question just because um, with the Boston Chinatown neighborhood, the reason why the Chinatown Resident Association was created is because there were people that did not live in Chinatown, like business owners or other sort of um, institutional stakeholders that were making decisions that didn't involve Chinatown residents. And so this that's why... Um, the na- this neighborhood association formed. Wow. Um, so, okay, so somehow, you know, the, this neighborhood association and the people of Chinatown have been able to sustain this ground, which is is really great. Like, yeah. I think that although it's terrible that it's been shrunk to, to this level, I think that it's also really important to know that you're still holding that space, right? Mm-hmm. Like, that the neighborhood's still holding that space. Yeah. So how do you think the neighborhood association has been able to do that successfully? I think they've been able to sustain themselves is because of um, collective mobility and I think being able to form a coalition because some of the struggles that Chinatown face, it's not the only neighborhood that's facing it. And yeah. so I think that's why it's important that we participate in coalition networks. So, for example, there's ADCO, um, which is sort of like a downtown coalition um, neighborhood groups that consists of like Fenway, Back Bay, downtown, um, in Chinatown, and I think like a couple, Beacon Hill and a couple of other neighborhood groups too. So I think being able to write collective uh, petition and also being able to speak to our representatives in City Hall, and I think being able to mobilize and do rallies, I think also causes like a typical day-to-day disruption. Mm-hmm. Not to say everybody can do their own thing, you know, they can put in their signature and put down their address to showcase their support too. Of course, everybody at their own level and comfort. Um, but I think, like, again, different kind of ways to, um, to speak up and, and raise an awareness about some of the issues that's, that the community is facing and welcoming um, different kind of people that, that w- that's supporting the cause. Yeah. Like, I have come across people who don't even live in Chinatown, but they, but they care about Chinatown as a neighborhood. They find a connection to the neighborhood, even though they may not have Asian heritage or, like, of Chinese descent. Um, or even from Massachusetts, they could just be like a transplant, but uh, but they're but they have all these variety of like skill sets, and they and they care about the community as well. They want to um, be a part of um, supporting the neighborhood residents. That you know that's also very much welcome, and I think it also helps too. Mm-hmm. One of the um, best things that came out about that was regulating Airbnb recently, um, and so I think that. That's all across. Why? Because what's what's going on with Airbnb? Yeah, Airbnb, you know, this little mini chair. What's the issue? <laughs> yeah, what's the issue? What's the problem? <laughs> Tell the people. What's the problem with Airbnb? Mm-hmm. Uh, it, well, definitely evicting a lot of people. Little do they know that's what's happening, increasing mm-hmm. a lot of rent for many of the renters. Chinatown is 
heavy renters, and so there's not much home ownership. And so I think that what that's what makes Chinatown a really vulnerable neighborhood because the landlords, you know, mm-hmm. they make more money, they profit more by um, making people pay one thousand dollars to stay for like a week at their at their homes, and that could happen like every week, and they're making so much more profit versus. Uh, a home for like a family that really needs to stay and have a voice in the neighborhood. It, it's just a lot of like unknowns and, and lack of accountability or reinforcement kind of thing. When if something were to go wrong, what would happen? But definitely, there's a lot of families that's being harmed or and individuals too that can't afford to to stay mm-hmm. with where they are. I'm even worried about like my own time of living here you oh, know yeah. so well i mean and affordable housing is one of the biggest issues right now yes. in cities like boston boston's not the only one but yeah. in every major city i think affordable housing is like the biggest problem and yeah. then when you add airbnb as a factor to it it's like you can't win like you really can't win i'm not you know and especially like you said in areas like chinatown that are so it's it's prime location yeah. you know it really is tell us about the success the recent success against airbnb so I think like with ADCO, we were all coming together to say like, what are some things that we collectively want that will benefit all of us rather than just focusing on one particular thing, but being able to think collectively and doing research, everybody taking turns in contributing to the project. So like we need first to know that Airbnb exists. People, Some people didn't even know that Airbnb exists or not. They're like, no, it's not happening. So then... So then one of the members have to go and do data and like research and spend like countless restless amount of nights trying to dig up this information data to say like, okay, this neighbor has this much amount of Airbnb. Um, and this is how, how, how it looks like, you know, and these are some of the residents concerns. These are some of the cases that occurred through it because of Airbnb. And so we also need to have a consistent time of meeting together too, you know, to, to remain um, to be clear on, like, you know, this is what what is um, impacting our neighborhood and how can we reach that. And I think it also requires a driver at times, somebody to also, like, steer because we, again, we're all, everybody's have different kind of capacity. But if there's that one driver who is able to, like, um, to share a little bit more, like, okay, you provide more of a guidance in terms of next steps, like, oh, this is probably where we need to get to now after getting this information okay, now we're ready to write the letter. Okay, now we're going to invite our city councilor. I'm going to have a Q&A with them and see what they can do so they can hear from us. And then being in the know, like, okay, well, the city councilor is going to have this meeting now. We're able to testify and share our experiences then now. And then after that, you know, so being able to be clear on what the process will look like, what are the steps that needs to be done, um, I think it all goes back to... a a coalition of people working collectively together and sharing these insight and experiences about that. Um, so I think like they recently, the city councilor had a 11 to two vote, 11 voted yes and two voted no against the regulating the short term um, Airbnb. The landlord also has to be living on site in order to do the Airbnb. So okay. if they're not living there, they can't do Airbnb or something oh, like okay. that. Okay, so it's essentially just like regulating how how a free-for-all this has been. Yeah. Right, right? like at mm-hmm. least setting some ground rules. Exactly, and not to throw shade at people who, who purchase these homes and trying to pay off their mortgage through this, yeah. but like 
at the end of the day, we're all trying to make it. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. It's, a, it's just at whose expense are you going to Exactly. Be? It's a life or death kind of thing for those who definitely have least means, less means, and, yeah. and totally. have nowhere to go. Mm-hmm. And that's the other, the other end of it. Okay, wow. Um, so a couple of things. One, I kind of want to talk about um, gentrification. That's what I was just going to say. <laughs> Took the words from my mouth. You know, I think, and I know that some of the beginning of this episode has been very Boston-centric and that if you're not from Boston, you might be like, oh, I don't really know the neighborhoods that she's naming or anything like that. But I do think that gentrification is countrywide Mm -hmm. um, in terms of, you know, and if you don't know what gentrification is, it's essentially changing the neighborhoods and and drastically changing the neighborhoods and the demographics and um, where the money goes and what you put into the neighborhood to make it more uh, enjoyable for middle, like wealthy, upper middle class. I think that's, yeah, that's definitely like one way of describing it. I think another thing that comes to mind for me is like, the natural movement of people back to cities, people that have more money, and with that, privileged people who are primarily white people, and then the city also evolving from there to become higher costs of living because Mm -hmm. of the natural migration of people moving back, which is pushing out people who were inhabiting this space beforehand who can't afford to live there anymore, primarily people of color or people with low income. And I think that it's really important to mention that it is primarily, you know, again, these marginalized groups that Mm -hmm. we've talked about, whether it be immigrants. I mean, you know, the fact that she said that Chinatown is now like a block and a half radius is Mm -hmm. ridiculous. And primarily because of a highway system that serves people that live in the suburbs. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so so one thing that, you know, that made me think about is how, how much we lose when you have these developments happen or these decisions that are made um, to really profit somebody who's not part of, you know, the, the group of the people that are living there. Mm-hmm. And not just drastically changing the neighborhood, and but also how much it truly affects those who own homes there, right? Mm-hmm. Even those who are part of this neighborhood and were able to get themselves up to a different tax bracket, let's say, right? Um, how much it affects it. And, and I think another big thing is affordable housing is a huge issue in the United States. Like in every city, there is just mm-hmm. lack of affordable housing. Like look at New York, look at LA, look at um, Chicago, mm-hmm. So you look at this and you say, okay, there's no affordable housing, but there's jobs. There's money here, clearly, because people are moving in to get these jobs. Mm-hmm. We don't qualify for these jobs because of the other many systems that are, you know, oppressing us, whether it be, like, education or – and even just home ownership, Like, the generational wealth that ties into home ownership, I think, is another – like really big point to have or in, and to make while we continue to have this conversation with Chu because that's what puts us at a disadvantage, right? Like if we don't own the home and we're just renting, at the end of the day, we really have no say about the housing options that we get. And that's something I read recently is like this is especially 
applicable for millennials because millennials aren't homeowners. Like at this point in time, it's like the percentages are way, way less of like when our parents or grandparents were our ages, they were owning homes by now. Yeah. And like, that's just not the reality. And it's not just because of affordable housing. It also is, we are the millennial generation that grew up during the market crisis. Do you remember yes. that? Yeah. It was like, there's so many factors. Yeah. But. So, so we are particularly affected by this, but we are also part of the generation that's like super techie and we've got mm-hmm. Uber, we've got Lyft and we've got Airbnb and we're mobile. And yeah. And we, yeah, we have couch surfing and we sometimes don't realize how much, we're actually contributing to the displacement of people um, by moving, you know, like, wow, like buying a house in the neighborhood and, and not really realizing what you are doing by buying that house and who you are um, and, and the things that got you there and also how you are going to impact the neighborhood. And that reminds me of this book um, that we read at this book club called There Goes the Hood. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a really good book. I recommend it to everybody. But one of the things that it highlighted for me particularly was the struggle of the homeowners as well. Mm-hmm. And Chu kind of touched upon this where it's like, you know, she said, no shade to people that are trying to pay the mortgage because at the end of the day, it's kind of like, it's like the worst of two evils. It's like, what do you do? Do you rent out and, you know, struggle to make your mortgage and struggle to make your tax payments and struggle to meet all of these requirements that have been laid out for you that aren't necessarily um, really helping you? Or do you rent out to Airbnb and make fast and easy money knowing that you're not going to contribute to the like culture of your neighborhood? Right. And it reminds me, too, of like that same idea going back to the larger idea of gentrification itself is like what do we do not develop cities because then it's the people that were living there it's they're benefiting somewhat from the developments sometimes it may not be directly for them but the economy like more jobs like that's contributing factors to these cities so what do you just like leave it like what's the answer do you leave it stagnant because you're I think that sometimes the intention, like gentrification happens as a result of something that is not intended to happen. And it's like, what do you do? What's the right answer? How do you benefit all parties that are like just trying to make it or just trying to improve the community? I think we should just dismantle the whole real estate business, to be honest. (laughs) A little radical. Get innovative. A little radical (laughs) activist here. But I really, yeah. I mean, look at East Boston. I mean... I, let's go back in and listen to what you have to say about Chinatown. But, you know, in East Boston, the same thing is happening. Look at all of the developments that are popping up by the, by the shore in a place where it was predominantly Latinos. And now I was just there last week and I saw maybe like three Latinos by the shore, you know, and it was all like people walking their dogs and parking their cars and condos, looked up the price for the condos ridiculous amount of money that they're charging for these condos and it's sad and it's sad because the way that it is done is that they literally push people out they offer they either make them an offer that you know they're like of course I'm gonna make take this money I would never make this money you know I'm gonna take that and move further further away from the neighborhood where I grew up and I called home the culture completely changes yeah because all these changes are not taking them into account so this is a bummer, but let's get back to Chu, who's actually doing something, working to try and stay in their community, build their culture, expand their culture as much as possible under these hard times, hard circumstances. Okay, go. Let's do it. 
So what? Oh, okay, so great. So like that was a yeah. success. Mm-hmm. What else are you working on? Um, so we're also trying to, through the Boston Transparency Association, we're also trying to fight for a permanent like, branch library. Right now we only have a temporary branch yeah. library. And it just opened recently, right? Yeah, okay. but you know what's really funny though is that I, based on this map that the city was was basing it off of zoning, of um, lining up the borders of Chinatown, right now the, this temporary branch library in Chinatown is not even in Chinatown. Where is it? It's in. It's considered, I think, like a downtown area. So it's, it's in at the China Orange Trade Center. Center. It's at the China Trade Center across from the Orange Line of the Chinatown Tea Stop. There's like a CVS. Yeah, that's where it is on the in the basement level. But apparently, that's not Chinatown, based on like borderlines that the city oh is trying. Oh my god! So I don't know how how people decide these zoning or like drawing the lines of these things or how often it happens, but it's just. Strange, and yeah. I and it makes me wonder, like, what is the deeper intent or purpose behind this, and why, and why is it drawn this way? I think you're bringing up a really big activist trait, which is questioning. Yeah, you know, I think that a lot of people would hear this and be like, "That's terrible." Yeah, but wouldn't be like, "Wait, why did this happen? Who mm-hmm. made this decision? Who was the one who?" You know, and I yeah. think that that is a really big takeaway from like being an activist that in order to be an activist and to create change you have to identify problems and ident- and, and really identify mm-hmm. the root causes of them and you only do that by questioning so mm-hmm. thank you oh, for like yeah thank, thank you, you for not just like being complacent <laughs> to the things that happen and angry about them but like mm-hmm. thank you for like genuinely asking the questions that need to be asked so that you can get to the root causes and start, yeah. you know, activating yourself and others mm-hmm. to do to create change. Yeah, no, I, I'm so glad that, like, you just pointed that out because I think growing up, I was conditioned the opposite end of things. I was conditioned to obey, to listen, you know, you don't challenge authority growing up in a in the school system. I feel like you don't talk back at teachers. You, oh, yeah. you soak in everything. You memorize everything they're telling you. Um, but I think, yeah, I think being able to challenge what you're, what, what's being shared with you and also having to be comfortable with feeling uncomfortable was some of the biggest challenge. I'm still working through that, honestly. Um, what was like the scariest thing that you ever questioned? Oh man, scariest thing? Not scariest, but the one that you were like, oh man, I shouldn't have asked that. And then you're like... Right. Oh, man. I think, like, a recent example of, like, being uncomfortable is just testifying, you know, sharing my story in front of, like, what that experience was like. Um, But, you know, it also made me think about just being in spaces, too. Just not being, just not having realized that, hey, I'm the only Asian woman here in this room, you know, or, like, I'm the only woman in this room, or, like, oh, there's no other Asian person in this room. So I think, um, I think even subtle things like that where where why is that in spaces yeah, yeah. in spaces in conversations um I think that's something it's you have to realize that it's there or like why you feel this way and then um being able to to let go of that fear because at the end it's it's you yourself that's holding yourself back and you might be just like thinking a lot more. I also going to say. Yes, mm-hmm. and you know it's it's funny you say that the way you grow up because the way we grow up is 
fact, it has a lot of factors in it, mm-hmm. right? Like it has our culture and our families and also but our school because in whatever we do after yeah. school. But I do believe that's one thing that I've really noticed about the education system in the United States is that it's very authority like there's an authority and you have that I do and I say this to every guest at this point. But I think that we are the turning page generation of saying like that is no longer the traditional way that we're going to stick to it and or that, that we're going to continue going down. And I think one of the reasons is technology, right? Like, I can sit in class and have a teacher or a professor try to tell me something, but if I Google it and I see that there's, you know, evidence that there is something else, I can be defiant in a classroom. And it's uncomfortable, but I also think that it's one of the most beautiful, like, learning moments for, for anyone right. to, to be challenged, to have the knowledge that is being given by this authority. Um, and the only reason why they're giving this knowledge is because they are the authority, right? So to, like, have that be challenged um, is, is amazing. So, okay, let's transition now into the hustle. So how many, okay, so... You're doing a lot, and you're working and getting your master's and involved, very involved with your neighborhood. What would you say are the, like, two issues that you're most passionate about? Two issues that I am most passionate about is definitely, I want to say, it goes back to education. I think, like, being able to learn and, and also... Because I think that's one of the earliest institutions that we enter into, and that's in the education system. And so I think that education is really important to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the second cause that I think is really important to me is being able to sustain, I think, like, being able to create a healthy pipeline of leadership. So then it's not just only one person that's there for a long time, yeah. but being able to to nourish and, like, train those who come after us while paying honor and respect to those who came before us. So what would you say are the, like, ways to do that? Ways to do that? Like, say we're going to give, yeah. okay, we're going to give you right now, mm-hmm. get ready, take out your phone, take out some notes, we're going to give you the five bullet points on how you can spark and inspire like the next generation of leaders and like leadership within the next generation while honoring the previous generation mm. as an activist. So I think one no is... No pressure. Oh. <laughs> oh, no, I'm like, ah! Um, I would probably say one is being able to find role models or like mentors, being able to find somebody who who sees potential in you and also being able to see somebody who you who you look up to. So I think it goes both ways. It's a reciprocating kind of relationship, knowing somebody that you want to aspire to be like, um, and also being able to see uh, somebody that you see potential in that follow that's going to be following in your footsteps next. Mm-hmm. So I think that role model, mentors, figures, um, that care of a community or an individual is important one. Mm-hmm. So do you have any mentors? <laughs> I do. I have a lifelong mentor I want to call, um, and he's the professor that I met. Um, his name is Dr. Peter Kiang. Um, Shout out, Dr. Peter Kiang. Peter! Shout out to you. <laughs> um, you know, I think he he just really changed my life by by him being the, one of the very first few phases I have met at 
at my first step into higher ed because I'm an only child. I don't have any siblings, so I don't know what it's like. I like in high school when people graduate, they decorate their cap, and I was like, "What is that? What you're doing that? Why are you what?" You know, that was, yeah. I was like, oh, I didn't know that. Otherwise, I would have done something like that, too. Yeah. And so I think, like, being able to step foot first, having met Dr. Peter King, he asked me this question, like, you know, what's your story? Tell me about some of, like, your experiences or, like, what makes you you. And just having somebody that's looking into your eyes and just, like, intensively hearing and just genuinely wanting to know who you are. I started, like, crying because there were just so many things that I have never shared with anybody that he was willing to listen and really genuinely wanted to to know how I could be best supported throughout graduating college. And so to this day, um, post-grad, you know, he's still somebody that, that I really look up to and that, like, check in here and there to see how we're doing and stuff. And I also go back and visit UMass Boston to provide support with the Asian American Studies program too. Oh, that's so great. And the best thing about great mentors is that it's for life. And the mentorship relationship is so yeah. important to any type of progress. Mm-hmm. And it's, I think the one thing that I hear you getting at is that it's a mutual relationship. Like mentorship is not a one-way road. It's not a one-way road. It's mm-hmm. like it has to be mutual because it has to be a reflection of self or something that I can be and aspire to be, but yeah. it also has to be reciprocated to me that you also believe that I can be that or right. more and or more mm-hmm. um, and then if it's like a great mentorship relationship then you actually do it right yeah. like you actually inspire me and then I actually follow your footsteps or mm-hmm. create my own thanks to you helping me pave those right. but I think that mentorship is absolutely number one mm-hmm. love it two yeah. go two I would probably say is knowing what that looks like in your life being able to identify what that looks like it could just be like sharing your opinion. It could be, uh, uh, you know, helping out with somebody doing a deed, or it could just be like, oh, I'm not going to shop here today. I'm going to save money or something. Yes. So being able to identify and and raise an awareness of what that looks like, what that uh, form of activism. I love that because I also okay. So that brings up two things for me. Yeah. One, that everybody has the opportunity to be an activist. That's right. Absolutely, anybody. It's like mm-hmm. no deed is too small mm-hmm. to be unworthy of yeah. active of the title activism. Right. Like literally, activism can be like you said, just not giving your money somewhere. Like mm-hmm. activism can be not staying on an Airbnb, yep. <laughs> not right. saying anything, but I'm just saying. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think yeah, absolutely. But I think that also highlights for me too money. Mm-hmm. Like money is really big when it comes to marginalizing people but also when it comes to decision making like a lot of decisions are made on money and it's funny because all of us have at least something that we're putting money towards and like whether it be our bills or whether it be like our clothes and like where are we putting our money and I think that even just being conscious of where you are giving that financial support that in itself is a huge like even something as big as I'm not going to buy, you know, I'm not going to buy a book. I'm going to go to the library, right. the new library that's not in actual Chinatown, <laughs> but we're calling Chinatown for some reason. Yes, I'm calling whoever made that decision out right now. Yeah. But you know what I mean? So it's like, where are we putting our money? And I think that a lot of people don't realize how much power we hold. And I think that a lot of our communities, right, and especially like marginalized communities, feel like, oh, we don't have power. Like people are just making these decisions. 
no, we do have the power because who are the consumers? Like right. all of these big companies are making a lot of money that consumerism. So right. we have power. Like we mm-hmm. really do. Like if you are, if you're working and you're making money and your money's going somewhere and you're not just keeping it. Cause let's be real. None of us are really just keeping our money or else, you know, right. we wouldn't be struggling. Where is it going? And how thoughtful are you being about where it's going? That's true. That's beautiful. Mm-hmm. You have another bullet point for me or do you? I think I do have one more. I think it's being able to be connected to something bigger than oneself. And I think that's like another level of, of, of seeing things. Um, I think being able to feel connected, that deeper connected that goes beyond an individual. It, I think that is really interesting for me to learn about because what I, from conversations with peers or friends or colleagues, there are people who who just think about like, oh, you know, I want to just have my own family and I'm just going to like take this job and I'm just going to make a lot of money. I'm just going to care for my family. But then I really hope that it could be pushed a little bit deeper. So then like, you know, it won't just be only focused on one small unit, but like being able to think beyond oneself, but more of a collective greater whole. So I love that you're bringing this up. So Mm -hmm. how do you feel like that has impacted you or, or your community and your activism? I think that it's it's interesting because I, I hear from different kind of conversations that I have with my peers that I would ask them, oh, uh, you know, what do you think about politics? And then people typically, like, have a stigma towards that term, too, you know? And so I think that um, if there could be new counter meanings, new counter definitions to things that it may not have to be this kind of like a stigma framed lens. Yeah. You know, a sense of community I think is so important. Mm-hmm. So bullet point number three is like stop thinking that you that you're just like ex- exist alone in this bubble. Yeah. Um and how do you when do you when did you have that realization? Oh man. Or do you think that you just or did you grow up in a in a place where you were like always thinking beyond yourself? Yeah, I think that was I think family was definitely something that made me feel that way by culture like as I mentioned earlier that I I am raised in a bicultural kind of household so mm-hmm. at home I had a set of culture outside of home I had to I had to learn or like practice another set of norms and so I think that one immediate example that comes to my mind is deciding where I'm going to go to college uh it was hard for me to to pick a college out of state or somewhere even further away because I felt the need to be close to family, to be by my family. And I also know that my mom didn't want me to go anywhere too far. So I know it's, like, weird to to, to say this out loud. But, yeah, I think that, that was one of the I don't think that's weird at all. Issue. I think a yeah. lot of people relate. I, would, I'm, I think more people than you think will relate to that. Yeah. And I think, I think it's also being clear about we are, we are uh, within a greater... Um, larger system of things you know like there is a ripple effect regardless if it's like small or big or or whatever it may look like one decision can easily still have a uh uh an impact or an influence to on, onto another person's life absolutely and it goes back to the individualistic like every mm-hmm. action that we make have you ever read cloud atlas or mm-hmm. seen the movie I'm just going to throw a quote at <laughs> um, But one of my favorite quotes from that book is, our lives are not our own. From womb to tomb, we are bound to others. And with every kindness and every crime, we build our future. And it's like, 
Yes, that's exactly, that's literally it. It's everything that you've been saying. Yeah. It's like, from the moment we were born, like, and when we, are, when we die, we won't, you know, like, for what? We do it, and like you said, like, some people do it for their families, but it's beyond that. Every action that we have, every interaction that we have with each other shapes who we are right. and shapes our community. And we need to stop living in a world that's so, like, siloed. Like, mm-hmm. we're here with each other. Yeah. You're, like, filling up my heart right now, too. <laughs> um, okay. I appreciate you. So, okay, we can start wrapping it up, but tell me um, anything else that you want to mention that you're, like, before I leave, the listeners must know that I care about this and that this is happening. I hope that the listeners will be able to share their voice and come on in, you know, start making a phone call, tell them what they think of the podcast and self-invite so that we can also hear their stories too. Yeah. Because if they're listening, there's an activism in you. I didn't tell her to say this. Okay. (laughs) This is not prompted. This is all her. Okay, great. So one last thing, the hustle. How would you define the hustle? What does the hustle mean to you? The hustle means to take care of yourself. You know, being able to nourish and do things that bring you happiness to continue doing more. (laughs) I I think it's just really being able to build that connection. It has to, again, go beyond your own self. It it will probably take somebody that, that will turn to you and say, like, hey, I think you're feeling a little bit down or, like, hey, you look like you need a gentle touch or like, hey, I really appreciate all the work that you're doing. Um, you know, you should probably just like leave, take, take the day off the next day, you know, like you you need that day to rejuvenate yourself. I think sometimes it you can't always see that in yourself, but so you need to hear that from somebody else because that's when, when, you, when, when you're able to sort of like hear back like that validation and know that, this burnout is real or like, Hey, you know, you need to slow down, you know, like you need to take care of yourself. So I think it's, it's, it's a journey. Yeah. And it's not a single journey. It's a journey that we have to take together. Yeah. Hey, so we're going to wrap it up. So if anybody wants to follow you or get in contact with you, the best method you would say i will probably just go with email they can yeah. contact me at chu.huang at gmail.com chu is spelled c-h-u dot h-u-a-n-g at gmail.com awesome mm-hmm. great what are your meetings are those open to the public yes they are they're That's free and open to the public That's and there's the also free pastries <laughs> the best pastries ever <laughs> you get to experience and eat bows <laughs> When are the meetings and how do we get there? It's the first Wednesday of every month at 6.45 to 8 o'clock. It is facilitated bilingually, so there will be English and Chinese facilitated at the meetings. And um, it's taking place at inside the Josiah Quincy Elementary School cafeteria. Okay. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Wow. So... The triumph against gentrification lies in the people. So one of the things I want to talk about is how bringing community skills together is the biggest takeaway for me from this episode. Well, I have two, but the first one is, you know, she talked a lot about um, different people having different strengths 
but also having different needs for an actual coalition. You know, you need everybody, and this is something we've been saying since day one, is that you need everybody at the table to really carry on change. And when you're talking about certain topics, like right now we're specifically talking about the gentrification of Chinatown because all of these businesses and all of these tours and all of these industries are, are, you know, making all of these changes, you need the OGs that mm-hmm. have been there at the Neighborhood Association. You need the millennials mm-hmm. who are very outspoken about the changes that they are seeing. You need the um, logistical and strategic people who can be like, I can community organize or I can, can get creative with the way that we're going to bring this up to our local politicians. And then you need the researchers that collect the data and that have the time. And so, and you need the allies, which she mentioned as well, like yes. people who may not be a part of that community. It's That's what coalition is. It's collective impact. How can we take from all of these different strengths and actually come together to make a difference. And it's not, it's the thing I love so much about coalition. And that's what I do with AmeriCorps as I work for coalition is that so, so often in causes like cause work, like we get siloed. Like everyone has, everyone has the same mission at heart. Like everyone has the best of intentions, but we're stronger together. So break down those walls of like, this is my org and this is the work we do and come to a meeting, come to a coalition meeting or get involved in something that you think that you care about, but you are like, I don't really know how to get involved. Bring your skill set there. And you know, I think for people who are listening to this and are like, I want to be an activist. I want to do something. I want to get involved. One of the biggest things that I would say is become part of your neighborhood association. Mm-hmm. Every neighborhood has an association and you, everybody lives somewhere. Mm-hmm. Right? I know this, like, this episode had me reflecting so much on like, what do I know about where my I neighborhood? Live? Yeah. Yeah. Or like where I grew up when I was living there. Like, what did I actually know? The place where you, you know, frequent, like mm-hmm. for millennials, I know we move a lot and we may not, you know, we may have roots somewhere, but live somewhere else. But I really think that one of the things that she brought up was we have to move away from this individualistic thought. And we have to realize that we we have to do it together and we have to come together. And I know that in the causes that we talk about are very decisive and that values play a part in a lot of these causes. And, you know, you can see that's why our policymakers and our Senate and our representatives have such like fundamental divides. But I think that housing is a basic need mm-hmm. like you know it's like part of our Maslow's hierarchy of needs it's like the very basic food shelter and right. water and shelter is our housing and so if we all agree that we all need some type of shelter to live as humans then why can we just get together and support our neighborhoods and support the culture that our neighborhood has and um, bring businesses to our neighborhoods and really collectively come together and put our, our brains together. So that was one of them. The other thing that I took from that was when she said the one, other thing you need is, she didn't say a leader, but she said somebody to br- keep bringing this forward. She said a driver. A driver, which I love. Yeah. I love that because I think so many of us feel so much pressure of having to be a leader, right? And yeah. like, or having to develop all these leadership skills. And, and a lot of us like don't even feel worthy of being a leader. Like, who am I to lead these people? But you can tap in and tap out, and especially when you have formed a group of people who collectively believe in one thing and are trying to bring about change. Like, you can tap in and tap out on 
when to motivate, when to do the data, when to, you know, mm-hmm. step in and step out and also for yourself. Right. Everyone is a leader in their own right. And I'm just going to throw collective in front of that word as well. Collective leadership. Oh. Like, there doesn't have to be a hierarchy. You don't we have to have, have yeah, we did. <laughs> you don't have to have a president. You, you know, like you can work on a team and all be leaders of your movement. And I think that's a beautiful thing. Oh. It's just a great motivator. It's so great. Yeah. Okay. And then to wrap it up, I just want to um, point out three points, the three points that she made as a brief summary. Yeah. First one was role model and mentors. Mm -hmm. If you are listening to this and you do not have a mentor, either go out and look at somebody in your community who inspires you or go out and be that mentor. Be that mentor. I love that. I I, like Mm -hmm. honestly, it. That is one thing that I value so much. Like, the, there's so much power in mentorship. Mm-hmm. And so I really appreciate you bringing that up. And I love the way we're talking about this building of relationships in a different light. But we can go back to our, our episode about networking. Yeah. And it's, like, the same idea, but it's a totally new light on it. And that's a perfect segue to her point number two, which also made me think about our episode two, Reginald, which was... Find out what activism means to you. Mm-hmm. And I think with Reginald, we talked about, you know, if you haven't listened, go listen to episode two. But we talked about what is, how did he find what his activism was mm-hmm. and what his, his place was. And I think that we're all going through that journey. But we are all activists. We can all be activists because we all, con- we all ha- contribute to this economy and we contribute to this world and the, and the systems that work in this world. And by the choices that you make, you can be an activist. And and in that, find your place. Mm -hmm. And then that brings us to point number three. My favorite. Which is being able to be connected to something other than oneself. And I think it goes really closely with number two. Because we've talked about this before, having this balance of individual responsibility and is what I'm doing making a difference and then having this new conversation of you can only get things done when you do it with other people and she says something about like everything you do has a ripple effect yes and I think it kind of like brings those thoughts together like you're what you're doing affects other people and affects the world but what other people are doing affects you and that's how we make progress and you know, she when she was talking about this, she also talked about the stigmas that exist because we give definitions and meanings to things, right? And mm-hmm. like kind of label each other. And, and there's so many ways that we separate ourselves from each other. Um, and just about like tearing all of that down and being able to like create counter definitions for things is like really big. So one of the things I want to point out here for, for everybody listening is the new economy or the solidarity economy movement, right? So like capitalism, big word that, you know, big yeah. system that we've created that, you know, you feel a certain way when you hear that word and you feel a certain way when you hear like socialism, right? So we've created all these terms to make us, to trigger us in a certain way. Um, but if we just got rid of all of those and we really just saw each other's I just neighbors or individuals, mm-hmm. our lives would be so different. Yeah. Like she's brought up the example of politics so yes. don't say politics when you want to start this conversation. Say civic engagement. Yeah. And then people are like, yeah, that's something I can I can be involved with and I can have a conversation with you about. 
Oh, I, I just, I encourage everybody to do the three key points that she pointed out. Remember, everybody can be an activist. And honestly, the power lies in the people. Mm-hmm. Give that gentle touch when it's needed. Yes. <laughs> so I'm going to end this with one of my favorite quotes from a book that I mentioned when we were talking to Chu called Cloud Atlas, where um, a person is about, an activist is about to engage in an activist act. <laughs> and somebody asks him, like, why are you doing this? Like, don't you know that anything that you do in life only amounts to a drop in a limitless ocean? And he goes on to reply, well, what is an ocean but a multitude of drops? Yes. And so I've lately been feeling like a drop. I'm not going to lie. But some, some days we're the drop. Some days we're the ocean. But the true power comes from the ocean itself made up of all of the drops. I love it. Thanks for listening, everybody. And we're going to take a moment to thank everybody who made this podcast possible, starting with you, the listener. Without you, there would be no us. I'd also like to thank the Activist Hustle team, starting with Rachel Sullivan, your producer and director, Aaron Taylor, our producer and editor, Brandon Rush, our creator, Amina Chandani for your creative logos and constant creative input, The Yard for lending us your space to record, And a final shout out to Blueprint Leadership. If this episode has at all inspired you to take action, remember, we have support for you. Blueprint is a leadership program made by young activists for young activists. Check out blueprintldc.com slash services and see how we can support you on your activist hustle.